The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, I just pray and ask that you'd be with us now, that you'd encourage us, that you'd knit our hearts together as we look at your word. God, that you would do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine as we reflect on and seek to apply that which you are revealing to us through the book of Colossians. God, I just pray and ask that you would be with us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that you would transform our hearts and our minds. God, I just praise you for your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We claim that promise now. God, be with us and mold us and make us into the people you desire us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians. We've been working our way through Colossians, and in Colossians you'll remember that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and that they're a church that is doing well, that they've heard the gospel, they've responded to the gospel, they're growing, and Paul says, I'm sure you're going to continue to grow, that you're firmly rooted in the faith, but he's concerned as well. He's concerned because false teachers are coming in, and they're promoting false doctrine. They're encouraging the believers in Colossae to, to see that they need something more than Jesus. That Jesus isn't quite enough. That there's more. And Paul really focuses on the person and work of Christ and tells them they do not need more than Jesus. That Jesus is enough. That He is sufficient. And as we've been working through this, we saw uh, over the last four weeks that Jesus is God. And we worked through uh, chapter 1, verses 15-20, through 20, where we saw that God, that Jesus is the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer of all things. And today, as we look at verses 21-23, through 23, we see God's grace. Just an amazing display of God's grace and Paul reminding uh, the Colossians of the grace that has been given them through Jesus. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So the first point in our sermon outline, the first point I want us to see is, number one, God's past grace. God's past grace. Paul begins by reminding the believers in Colossae that although they were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, they were engaged in evil deeds, that that is no longer the case. He says you were formerly this way, and now Jesus has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. You see, they were once alienated from God, but now they've been reconciled. They've been made right. They've been brought into right relationship to Him because of His death on the cross. The term alienated 
means to be estranged or to be far away from. It conveys a a break in relationship. And it's the reason that reconciliation needed to take place. It's the opposite of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoring of a right relationship. And alienation is the breaking of a relationship. The Greek word alienated is used only two other times in the New Testament. First in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, we read this, Therefore remember that, that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, the Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded is the word, alienated, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That the Gentiles were once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And then it says, it goes on to say that Christ died to make peace, And verse 16, in order that he might reconcile them both, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, to one body through the cross. So there's this idea of alienation, the separation, and then reconciliation. Or Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 18, same word is used again. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded or alienated, same word, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So he's saying, you don't need to be excluded. You don't need to be alienated from God any longer. And Paul is reminding the believers in Colossae that at one point they were alienated from God. They were separated from Him. And therefore they were excluded from His kingdom and His promises. So what brought about this alienation in the first place? Well, Paul says it was because they were hostile in mind. He's writing to the believers in Colossae. He says you were hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Wow, those are are pretty harsh words. They must have been pretty terrible people, right? I mean, to say you were hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds. Well, yeah, they were terrible people, right? But the Colossians were not unique. For Scripture teaches the same of you and I and for all of humanity for that matter. Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10-18, through 18, he makes this fact plain. He says, Therefore there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting the Old Testament, Paul says that in Romans. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. There's none righteous. No, not one. Or in Ephesians 2, we read, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived. We used to all live this way, he says. We all lived this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can go on all day talking about scriptures that point to the fact that we are all 
sinners. But I'm not going to spend much time there because I'm hoping, hopefully you are all already convinced of that fact, that you are indeed a sinner. Right? That you have sinned against a holy God. But what I really want to focus on is not the fact that we're all sinners, but instead on just how sinful people are. Just how sinful we are. How sinful we were prior to knowing Christ. Paul, in driving this point home, says that the believers in Colossae, he says they were hostile to God. And that peace needed to be made. In other words, they were enemies. They were at war with God. And the Bible says that that is true of all unbelievers. That they're at war with God. We say things like, and I actually had a conversation with somebody yesterday about this. Where we were talking about this person who's a really good person. They just don't see their sin. And because they're a good person, it's hard for them to see their sin. And on some level, we can say they're good and we mean that they're good. But at the same time, they are hostile toward God. It doesn't matter how good of a person they are, or even how religious they are, that if they reject the God of the Bible, they are hostile. They've declared war with God. They're His enemy. The Bible says that of all unbelievers, all those who are unredeemed. John 3, verses 19-20 through 20 says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil, and everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We hate light. None of us want to be confronted with sin, not not in ourselves, not in our sinful desires. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to be confronted. And the last thing we want to to have happen is to be exposed. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall now be saved by His life. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, unbelief is not merely indifference or ambivalence toward God, it is hostility. And I think it's easy for us to begin to think that. That God has declared war on unbelief. That unbelief is this nebulous thing and that God has declared war on it. Instead, however, I think it's more accurate to say that humanity has declared war with God by rejecting Him. We are the ones who declared war. We said, no, I will not. I will not submit to your rule, to your authority. That's what sin is. It's saying, no, I will do what I will do. I will live according to my rules, not yours. Sin sets itself up in opposition to God. It says, no, I will not conform to the way you want me to live. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we see this. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. 
So there's this idea that they know the truth, but they suppress it. They push it down inside. And everyone knows the truth. It says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the issue is not that the world needs more convincing proof that God exists. They know that God exists, and they suppress it inside of themselves. And they hide in the darkness. And if light is shine on them, their eyes hurt because they don't want to see the light because the light exposes sin. That which is known about God is evident within them. These things have been clearly seen. God has clearly seen in His creation. That if you go outside and you look at His creation, it's clear that there is a Creator. That we know that there's a difference between right and wrong. We argue in our culture, oh, there's no difference. Our culture says there's no absolute truths. There is absolute truth. That there is a difference between right and wrong. And it's ingrained in us. It's in our hearts. We know it to be true. Even a baby at the youngest age begins to know that there's right and there's wrong. And chooses sin. They suppress the truth. And then in verse 28 of Romans 1, it continues and says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, they know the truth of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they practice those things, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So they not only say, I know the ordinance of God. I know deep in my heart that this is wrong. And I know that I will stand before God. I do not care. I will continue to do it. And I will give hearty approval to those who do these things. You see, God has made Himself evident in and through His creation. Yet in arrogance, we reject Him. Humanity rejects Him. Because we want what we want and we're willing to sin in order to get it. And sin doesn't want, to be, it doesn't want to be exposed. So in our flesh, we love darkness and we hate light. That's why Jesus said in John 7, 7, He said, the world it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That Jesus shines a light on the world and the world says, we do not like Jesus. The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. You see, the point is that left to ourselves in our natural state, we are desperately wicked. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not good people who have maybe committed a few sins here and there, who have maybe just, you know, we we got off the path a little bit. 
We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We are haters of God in our natural state. There is none who seeks after Him, Scripture says. No, not one. And Paul is reminding the Colossians that that was their former way of life. He says, this is the way you walked. This is the way you lived. Right? He says, you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. But, it's my favorite, uh, one of my favorite things about Scripture, the way it sets us up for this great but. And we don't see the word but here. It says yet. But it's the same idea. Yet, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. It says, He's reconciled you. He's, you've been made right with God through Christ. That's good news. That's the Gospel. But we need to have the bad news in order to understand the good news. The bad news is that we are unbelievably, desperately wicked, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, God saved us through Jesus Christ. Praise Him for that. That if you're a follower of Jesus, that He died in your place. He took the punishment that you deserved so that you can spend eternity with Him in heaven. But... And that's the Gospel. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what has been done for you. You've been reconciled. Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're still an enemy of God. There's no middle ground. You're on one side or the other. That's what Scripture teaches. So we may have people in our cultural uh, war on ethics, war on morals. We say, well, they're, uh, they're, they're really uh, somebody we can partner with, right? And there are other people of other faiths who we may say, we can partner with them in this, in this political fight. We can partner with them in where our country's head. We can partner with them in, this, in the declining morals of America and teaching a Judeo-Christian ethic, right, or those things. However, Scripture says that if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are enemies of God. Enemies. And ultimately, enemies of the Gospel. The very thing that will change our culture. So Paul, he says, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what God has done for you. You've been reconciled. That's God's past grace. God has reconciled you. So having seen God's past grace, now let's consider God's present grace. Number two, the second point in your sermon outline is God's present grace. Verse 22 continues and says, He did this. He reconciled you in His fleshly body through His death, His death on the cross. That's the Gospel, right? He did this in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, God's grace doesn't end the day we are saved. He remains at work in our lives. And verse 22 tells us that He reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless. See, He saved us so that He might continue to grow us. Our memory verse is Colossians 1.28 this month. And it says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying we continue proclaiming, teaching the gospel so that every person can become complete, sanctified in Christ. He doesn't say, 
You know, we're going to teach the gospel so that every person can get saved and then live, live like the rest of the world. No, he says, we're going to continue to preach the gospel. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, sanctified in Christ, set apart, holy. As believers, we have been saved by the gospel and we will be saved by the gospel. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself, present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The word sanctify, it's the idea of making holy and blameless, washing clean, growing. See, it's clear from Scripture that we are saved by grace and we are sanctified. We grow by grace. We have a tendency to think that we're saved by grace and we grow by our own efforts, right? But that's not the case. I remember thinking this as a Christian. Okay, God saved me, so now I need to grow. I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I need to read Scripture. I need to study. I need to work hard. I need to cause myself to grow. And you know what? I look at these people around me and I think, I can do pretty good, right? I look around and I think, you know, I just got to work hard. If I work hard at this, I can progress in the Christian life. And I really thought that somehow I was going to be the one who would progress. Because in every aspect of my life, it was about me working hard, me being diligent, me climbing to the top, so to speak. But then I began to realize that I couldn't grow in and of myself. That it was only by God's grace that I would grow. I couldn't cause myself to grow by my own efforts. God is the one who causes growth. And praise God that He allowed me to grow in spite of my um, wrong thinking. Philippians 2, verses 12-13 makes it clear that God is the one who causes growth. So then, my, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence... He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, work out your salvation. You do need to work, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. So don't hear me think, or don't don't think you hear me say that we sit back and we do nothing. Because he says plainly, clearly, work out your salvation, right? Because God's at work in you. That it's not something we do in ourselves, but it's not something that we do, that we accomplish, that we see God accomplish in our lives without some effort on our part. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2 makes the same point. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside our sin, let us run with endurance, let us work hard, let us grow, fixing our eyes on Jesus, it says who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us work hard because Jesus is going to do the work. What an amazing promise, right? Let us work hard because Jesus is going to be the one who perfects our faith. We already looked at Colossians 1.28, right? Our memory verse for the month. But verse 29, when we read it in conjunction with verse 29, he says, 28, he says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
Verse 29, for this purpose I also labor. He says, I work hard. I strive. I labor hard at this. Striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. He says, I work hard. I do. But it's according to His power working in me. Or Paul who said, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored more than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. He said, I I labored more than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So it's not that we do nothing. We must work. We must labor. We must strive to grow. But if we are going to do it, we must rely fully on His grace. If we are going to grow, it is only by His grace. So we strive relying on the grace that He will produce the fruit in our lives, the fruit of growth. So having seen God's past grace, that salvation that He saved us, He reconciled us, He redeemed us, when seeing God's present grace that He's growing us, that it's really His work in us, that yes, we work, but it's his, ultimately His work in us, His present grace is working in us. Now we turn to our third and final point, God's future grace. God's future grace. Paul goes on to say, verse 23, He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul is clarifying here. He wants to be clear that the promise of sanctification does not apply to everyone. The promise of growing does not apply to everyone. He doesn't say, you're all going to grow. Everyone. He does not say that. Instead, it applies only to those who have been truly saved. And that's his point here. He's kind of clarifying. He's saying, I know that you've been saved. I know that you're going to grow if you persevere in the faith. So he's, he's, kind of, he's making sure that he, he adds this statement to clarify here. And his point is that continuing in the gospel is evidence of genuine salvation. In other words, if someone is truly saved, they will Hold fast to the gospel. Paul has already made it clear that he was confident that the believers in Colossae would persevere. You read the first part of Colossians 1, verses 3 through 12. You read that. You see that, that he, he knows they're going to persevere. Or Colossians 2, 5. He says, Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. He knows that they're going to persevere. He says, I'm confident of that. So Paul was confident that the true converts in Colossae would continue to grow. The clarification, the warning, if you will, in Colossians 1.23 is to make sure they're genuine converts. If they didn't persevere, it was because their faith was not genuine. See, genuine faith endures. Genuine faith endures. That is what the Scripture teaches. John 8, verses 31-32, through 32, Jesus said, If you continue in My Word, then you are true disciples of Mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you continue in My Word. Mark 13, 13, You will be hated by all because of My name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Not the one who sprouts up for a season, and when the sun comes up and scorches, scorches them, they wither away and die. Not that one. The one who endures to the end. Not the one who is choked out by the worry and the trouble of this world, but the one who endures to the end. 
He will be saved. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, he will, we will also reign with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. 1 Corinthians 15 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed, you sprouted up, and then you withered and died. See, Hebrews 3, 5-6 through tells us the same story. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of things that were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. So Christ is faithful and we are his sons if we hold fast our confidence and, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. If we hold fast firm until the end. You see, we must persevere to the end. We must And that's what the Bible teaches. We must persevere. I love the way John Piper says, must doesn't sound like a very gospel word, right? That God God gives us grace. And this is a message on grace. God's giving, it's only by His grace that we persevere. So how can I say, we must, we must persevere, as though somehow it's by the sweat of our brow. Well, I say we must because it's what the Bible teaches. It's what verse 23 teaches. Look at it again. Colossians 1.23 If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He's saying, make sure that you trust in the real gospel. Make sure that your trust is in the true gospel. The same gospel you first heard. The same gospel that's been proclaimed throughout the world, he says. The same gospel that I, Paul, was made a minister of. Not some other gospel. Not some new gospel that maybe these teachers are coming to Colossae and they're bringing to you. Not some gospel that's new, that's cool, that's restricted to this area. No, no. The same old gospel. The gospel that, that has existed since you first heard of it. The same gospel that I was made a minister of, Paul, he says. The same gospel that's actually having an effect over the entire world. That's the gospel. That's the good news you need to hold fast to. The news that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you might be reconciled to Him. You see, he wants them to know that the real gospel has not only saving power, but it also has keeping power. That God's grace saves us. It sanctifies us and it carries us to glory. That it's God's grace that carries us. You see, the we must, we must persevere is followed by the God will help us persevere. What an amazing, God will will do that in us. What an amazing promise. He says, you must persevere. You must persevere to the end and God will do it. Just like he says, you must grow and you must put effort But God will, by His grace, grow you. See, we must persevere, and God will. He will cause His saints, His believers in His gospel, to persevere to the end. As we read earlier in Colossians 1, verses 6-9, through it says, "...the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, 
so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, you're waiting for Jesus, who will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of the Lord. He's going to make you blameless, and he's the one who's going to do it. God is faithful, it says, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. Or we read Jude 24, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now to him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. Or 2 Timothy 4, 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. He will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. And to Him be the glory for that. It's not up to me to make sure that that happens. That it's His grace that enables that to happen. Or Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses. For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is not questioning whether or not the true Colossian believers will remain faithful. He's confident they will. He's already said that. He's confident that they will because God is the one who has saved them and God is the one who will sustain them. Instead, he writes this as a warning to avoid the false teachers in Colossae who are beginning to teach a gospel that's different from the one they heard. A gospel that says, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but then you need to do something else he says if you've trusted in the right gospel the true gospel you will grow that if you've trusted in the true gospel god will cause you to grow and he will keep you steadfast in him you see the point is that god completes the work that he begins in us he completes the work he enables us to start the race he enables us to run the race and he enables us to finish the race Praise God for that. And I know that looks different in our different lives. And sometimes we had a conversation with a a brother in Christ yesterday about a a family member. You can be praying for this person. Um, uh, He he was talking about a family member and he said, I I think he's a believer. Uh, He he professes Christ. He goes to church on Sunday. But he never seems to, uh, to live out, to really apply what the Scripture says. He never seems to really do anything with what he learns. He never seems to change at all or grow. God completes the work he begins. And if this person, if this person's family member is a true believer, God will enable him to run the race. There may be times of stagnancy. There may be times where people don't grow. But at the end, he he will grow. And it looks different for different people. Different people grow at different rates. But he will grow. And he will finish the race firmly rooted in the Gospel. Or maybe, maybe he hasn't understood the Gospel. Maybe he's believed a Gospel that's different than the Gospel that we believe. Maybe he's believing a Gospel that's different than the Gospel that's had an impact throughout all the world. Maybe he's believing a Gospel that's different than the Gospel that Paul was made a minister of. Maybe he's believing a Gospel that is different than what the Colossian believers believed. Paul says, you need to get this Gospel right. 
need to focus on the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who saves you, the one who sustains you, and the one who's going to carry you through to completion. So we've seen God's past grace, that God has saved us. God's present grace, that He is is saving us, that He's growing us, that He's making us more holy. And God's future grace, that He's going to carry us through to the end. So the question is, how do we apply this to our lives, both individually and corporately, here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take these truths of God's past grace, God's present grace, and God's future grace and apply them? Well, I want to encourage you, number one, celebrate His provision. Make to celebrate. To celebrate His past grace, what He has done for you. To celebrate by giving testimonies, by sharing testimonies of how God is working in your lives. To celebrate by coming on Sunday morning and realizing that Sunday morning, is, it's important that we learn, it's important that we, um, that we uh, care for one another, it's important that we love one another. Those are things we do all the time throughout the week, though as well. Sunday morning is really a celebration. It's a celebration, we remember God's provision. And Sunday morning should be something I pray that you look forward to all week. Where you think, it's like going to a birthday party every single week. I get to go and celebrate what Jesus has done for me. And some people come to church and they look, not this church, maybe this church. Some people come to church and they look miserable. And it's like, has Jesus done anything for you? Right? Because we should be celebrating God's past grace. Celebrate His provision. Number two, Commit to growing, right? Commit to growing. Be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. We had individuals at community group Thursday night who were sharing some difficult things, right? And we should put ourselves out there. Commit to growing. Work hard. Study. Get up in the morning. Set your alarm, right? It's hard work. We work hard. And we should stand with Paul and say, I labored more than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. It was only by God's grace that I did it, but I got up in the morning. I opened my Bible, even when I didn't feel like it. I prayed, even when it was hard. I think of, think of Ruth, right? Who I absolutely love and adore, who reads her Bible. Read your Bible, right? Commit to growing relying on His present grace. And lastly, continue in the Gospel. Trust in Him. Trust in future grace. He's carried you this far. He saved you. He's growing you. Trust in the Gospel. Don't get distracted from the Gospel. Examine yourselves. Make sure you truly are believing the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel that the Scripture teaches. But always come back to it. Always, always, always come back to it. And when life gets sideways, it's probably because we've forgotten the gospel. It's probably because we're not living in light of the gospel. And we need to remember that God is the one, that come what may, God is the one who He's given us past grace, present grace. He's going to continue to give us future grace. That if we are His children, it's not up to me. It's not up to the one who runs. Instead, it is up to God who carries us to glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I praise You for Your past grace, Your present grace, Your future grace. 
God, I just look forward to seeing how you're going to work in the lives of these believers here. I praise you that you have worked so mightily in them. Help us to celebrate that fact. Help us to celebrate you and what you have done. Help us to commit to you to growing, to be serious students of your word, to be serious about growing in you. God, may we not be spiritual infants, but instead may we seek to grow. May we seek to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And God, I pray and ask that we would continue. That we would continue in the Gospel. That You would hold us fast. God, that by Your grace, You would see us through to the end of the race. Help us to finish well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomason, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.